Again, our scripture is Daniel 7, 1 through 14. Let's stand for the reading of the word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the, other, all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands, ten thousand times, ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." This is God's word. No problem. Nice work. Go get him. <laughs> Jason's words to me as he's walking down was, go get him. Which feels about right for this passage, I think. How's that for a little August reading? Just on an overcast Sunday morning. Um, good morning. Great to see you. Thank you for that. Good to see you all. 
Um, so we're, we're on the home stretch here of this summer series. We are looking at the person of Jesus, we're seeing who he is and what he has done for us. We're doing that by looking at the Old Testament, by looking at the Old Testament characters and themes and stories and seeing how Jesus is the amazing, miraculous fulfillment of so many themes and stories. And so each week we're looking at like a particular snapshot of Jesus. We've seen him as the suffering servant. We've seen him as the great prophet. We've seen him as our high priest, as our king as the offspring of Abraham, all these little snapshots that together build this beautiful uh, image. I liked Linda's uh, metaphor of this diamond, this many-faceted diamond of of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And today, we look at another, this is going to be our final snapshot, individual snapshot, and then next week, I'll bring it all together, hopefully, Uh, looking at Jesus as the Son of Man from Daniel 7. I, was, uh, I thought this was interesting. I would guess for most of us, this is by far the most obscure of the Old Testament passages we've looked at. And Son of Man is probably the most obscure reference that we'll look at all summer. But for Jesus, interestingly enough, actually Son of Man was his favorite way of referring to himself. When he thought about himself and his ministry, for some reason, the title Son of Man made more sense to him than any other title he used of himself. So we'll have to figure out what is going on here in Daniel 7, and uh, how is Jesus a beautiful fulfillment of this picture in Daniel 7. A little context to the book of Daniel, since you probably weren't reading it in your uh, devotionals this morning before you got here. Um, so Daniel's written uh, around the 6th century BC, and the context is exile, Right? Finally, we've seen Israel in the land. We've seen hundreds of years of disobedience. Finally, God brought about what he promised if they disobeyed, which is that foreign nations would come, conquer them, and carry them into exile. So they are now living in exile in Babylon. Just as they started in exile in Egypt as slaves, they've been brought back to that that dynamic of slavery in a foreign land. They are powerless. They are helpless, living in the biggest empire in the world of that time. And wondering, of course, where is God in all of this? And so Daniel is written to address that issue. And particularly to address the question of how do you live as faithful people of God when you're living in exile? What does it look like to live faithfully when you're living in exile? In the book of Daniel, we're introduced to these really faithful Israelites who lived really well in exile. People like Daniel. People like his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who learned to live faithfully to God and God's kingdom in the midst of living in exile. And we're introduced in in Daniel and Daniel 7 particularly to God's plan to one day set everything right, to have these tables turn, and for God's people once again to be established and to be be given peace and order and justice. So that's what we're going to learn about today and see where Jesus... uh, plays out in all of this. So Daniel 7 is um, one of the actually most famous parts of the book of Daniel, I would argue, minus the uh, stories about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we all know. Um, And in this chapter, Daniel is given a dream, right? This visionary uh, experience, and it's wild. There's these wild images. But the Im- I would argue the dream is intended to comfort Daniel, to comfort the people, ultimately to comfort us today. So let's walk through this. I don't know if you're able to hang with those images as they're being read to you, but let me just take you through it pretty quickly, and then we'll look at how, how is Jesus a fulfillment of this wild scene. So I'm, I'm going to break the, the vision down into three scenes. The first scene comes in verse 1 through verse 8, and you get the appearance of these 
four beasts, right? So you've got, the, you've got the sea, and there's this swirling sea, and then out of the sea emerges these four beasts. I don't know if you could picture them, but they come out, and they're terrifying. They're, they're wild. The first one uh, looks like a lion, but it's got the wings of an eagle. Uh, the second one looked like a bear, right? And it's got these ribs in its mouth, and it's chewing on these ribs. Um, the third is a leopard. He has four heads and four wings. And then the fourth is the baddest of them all. Okay, he's got those iron teeth. He's crushing and devouring his victims. And, and the scene is intended to be horrific. It's intended to be frightening and to be terrifying. Now, what's nice is we actually get an interpretation of these in, in verse 15, okay? So look at verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, naturally, uh, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. So he's actually somehow, he enters into the visionary experience. I approached one of those standing there, someone else in the, in the dream, and asked him the meaning of all this. So he, gave, he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. Here's the key, verse 17. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, all right? So we're told these beasts are actually these future kings, and we'll, as it goes on, you would find out it's actually kingdoms, not just kings, but kings and their kingdoms. So, and we're not gonna take the time to figure out what four kingdoms are these today, um, but what I can tell you is these beasts represent human earthly kingdoms, and what you need to know about them is that they're beastly, <laughs> They're bad, right? They, they come with violence and power and aggression, and they assert themselves on the world and on God's faithful people. They harass God's people. They terrify God's people. And of course, think of Daniel's audience, okay? You're Jewish slaves living in exile in Babylon, the, the most powerful nation in the world. You know what it's like to be oppressed by the beasts. Okay? You're, you're living that experience right now, all right? These human Kingdoms with their values, their power, their violence, just exerting their will on God's people. So that's the first scene. And then in the second scene, in verse, I'll say, 9 through 12, uh, the tone completely shifts. And the per perspective totally shifts. And I think we're now given uh, God's perspective on this. And we're given access into what God's up to through this. So let me read to you uh, verse 9 and 10 again. As I looked... Thrones were set in place, okay? So when you think of thrones, you're thinking about authority, right? People with authority sit on thrones. So these th thrones are being set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who's the Ancient of Days, do you suppose? God, right. God the Father, the Ancient of Days, the one from everlasting. So he has taken his seat on his throne. So now we're, we're seeing things from a heavenly perspective. We're getting access into God's throne room. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. There's just a purity, a, a, a cleanness and a purity to him. Uh, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. So there's this, God is this pure and purifying presence. There's fire going out from him. And then it says, thousands upon thousands attended him. Well, there's all these attendants around him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. I'm assuming these are angelic attendants of the Lord. And then it ends at the end of verse 10 by saying, the court was seated and the books were opened. So apparently this is not just a throne room scene. This is actually a courtroom scene, meaning we're being, we're being given access into God's heavenly courtroom. God is the judge here and God is about to pronounce a judgment. He's about to give a verdict 
on the situation that he's seeing on earth. Whatever else is happening on earth, God is now going to enter in and pronounce his verdict and his decision on what should happen. And here's his verdict. Look at verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. We're not going to talk about the horn. Uh, you know, jump to Revelation, figure it out. Uh, I kept looking until, here's the verdict, until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So the verdict, just to keep it simple, is judgment on these four beasts. Judgment on these kingdoms, these beastly kingdoms of the world. As terrifying, as powerful as they seem, they are nothing compared to the ancient of days. Okay? He pronounces his verdict. They're stripped of their authority. They're destroyed. Their kingdom will not last. God's kingdom will last. Okay, you with me? Is this making sense? All right. Then scene three, this really gets us into what I want to talk about today. You get the entrance of this very mysterious figure. He hasn't shown up in Daniel till now. And we have no anticipation of him until now. Verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, right? Which at least means he's human, okay? Uh, In contrast to the beasts that are beastly, this, this figure is human. He's a son of Adam. He's an image bearer of God. So there's one like a son of man, and it describes him as coming with the clouds of heaven. He's coming in heavenly splendor and glory, coming on the clouds. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So he's led into this scene where the Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne. And then here's God's verdict to the Son of Man. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Right? So he's led into the Ancient of Days presence, and he is given a kingdom and authority that will last forever. In contrast to the beasts who asserted their own authority and had a kingdom for a time, he is simply given the kingdom by the Ancient of Days, and his kingdom will not be temporary. It will last forever and ever. There's the basic scene of Daniel 7. Now, two things to say before we jump to Jesus here about the Son of Man, uh, one that you wouldn't think of and one that you would. The first that you probably wouldn't think of is that in this vision, the Son of Man actually represents not just an individual, but he represents the faithful people of God. And as you read the interpretation that goes, that becomes clear. So let me read to you verse 17 and 18. Okay, take a look. Think with me here. Uh, This is the interpretation. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. Verse 18, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. So the vision is of an individual, but then in the interpretation, it's basically saying that individual, individual represents the people of the Most High who will receive a kingdom. Look at verse 26, same thing is said. This is the interpretation. The court will sit and the beast's power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to who? The holy people of the Most High. So in the vision, the individual Son of Man clearly represents not just himself, but represents the saints, the people of the Most High. So I think in the original context, for Daniel's audience, what what you're getting in this vision is this wild vision intended to communicate something and here's what it is God wins in the end okay 
Despite what you experience now, despite what you're experiencing by the, at the power of the kingdoms of the earth, God wins at the end. In the end, he will set things right. The tables will be turned. He will establish his kingdom. And his people, his faithful people, will reign with him. All right? They will receive his everlasting kingdom. Again, what a comfort for Israel living in exile at the hands of the Babylonian Empire to, to, to know one day the tables will be turned. This empire will not last. No earthly empire will. God's kingdom will come. He will set things right. And you, his people, will rule and reign with him forever. So this son of man figure clearly, at least we need to say, represents not just himself, but the people of God. But then the second thing to say, which is kind of obvious, is yes, he represents the people, but clearly in the vision, he is an individual, right? It's an individual, mysterious figure who comes and receives this kingdom. So I put that together to say that, that, that there's this figure that God is going to raise up, and he's going to receive a kingdom, but his kingdom and his victory will not just be his own victory, but it will be a victory that is shared on behalf of the people. He represents the people. He is victorious on behalf of the people. The people will rule and reign with him in God's kingdom forever. All right? Does that make, some, make sense of the vision, more or less? Lots of details. Obviously, I'm skipping over. So I think to sum it up, in the original context, context this vision is given to Daniel for a people living in exile. It's intended to comfort them, to encourage them, to remind them of this basic idea. Remember who has ultimate authority. Despite what you see, God stands on his throne and one day he will win and his people will, will rule and reign with him. Despite what you see, put your trust in that and how the story's gonna end. All right, I think that's the basic message of Daniel 7, at least in the original context. Okay, so now let's jump to Jesus, all right? as our son of man. All right, uh, you don't have to turn anywhere, but let me just talk you through some things in Jesus' ministry. I mentioned at the beginning, son of man is actually his favorite way of referring to himself. Um, these days, you, don't, you can't get away with referring to yourself in the third person, like if I just started, you know, call myself the Dave, you guys probably wouldn't, that wouldn't work. But apparently, if you're Jesus, that works. So um, over 50 separate, on over 50 separate occasions in the Gospels, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And we should ask, partly, why does he do that? I think one of the reasons is because that title was not as well known in the first century. Um, as well known as something like Messiah or Son of God, which if you use that title, that has all, it's just loaded with all these political connotations and people have filled that with certain expectations and Jesus did not want to touch those titles because it was misleading to who he was gonna be. Son of Man was pretty obscure. People didn't know what to expect. So it gave him a title that he could use and allowed him to fill that, that title with, with his own meaning, define himself in his own terms, I think. I think that's partly why he uses son of man instead of son of God or Messiah or other things that would have been more common in the day. Um, if you were to just sort of track his son of man sayings in the Gospels, you would find that they, they fall into three basic categories, right? Let me just mention them to you. I'll give you some examples of this. So the first set of categories comes early in his ministry, and he'll use it when he's referring to his authority on earth, the authority that his father has given him during his earthly ministry. So... Like during one of his first miracles, there's this lame person that's brought down, and Jesus says, it's okay, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> and the guy's like, I don't want my sins forgiven, I want to be healed. And, and, everyone's, and the leaders are like, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, well, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. 
okay? I've been given authority on earth to forgive sins. Or also early in his ministry, they're walking through the fields and uh, they're picking grain and they're harvesting grain and eating it on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are saying, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus responds by saying, yeah, well, the, the son of man is actually Lord of the Sabbath. It's my day. I have authority over it. So I can determine how, what faithful Sabbath observance looks like. They didn't like that particularly. Um, but you get these, these statements about his authority on earth. Then, midway through his ministry, they fall into this category of sayings that describe his rejection, suffering, and death. I'll just give you one right in the middle of his ministry. Uh, He then began to teach them, this is right after they identify him as Messiah, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So first you get these sayings of his authority, but then you move to these sayings of his rejection, suffering, and death. And then the final category is referring to his future coming in glory when he will return beyond death and he will rule and reign and act as judge of all peoples. So let me give you one example from Matthew 19. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, so Jesus, through his Son of Man sayings, gives us this picture of someone who comes with God's authority, but who will come and suffer and die, but then through death and resurrection will return in heavenly splendor. That's the figure that he creates of himself through these sayings. Now, I want to take you uh, directly to one particular, I think the most important reference, Jesus' reference to the Son of Man. Okay, I want, you don't have to go anywhere. I'll put it up here. This is one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture, which kind of brings all of this together. Um, so Jesus, uh, this is the night before he dies. Uh, he has just been arrested, okay, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has betrayed him. He's been arrested and he's brought, I think, into Caiaphas' home, into the, the uh, high priest's um, or a courtyard where the Sanhedrin would meet, like the ruling religious leaders of the day. They would meet, and they were basically the judges, uh, you know, in that time. They were the, the religious courts, the religious authorities, and he's on trial at this time, okay? And they're trying to bring witnesses against him, right? They're trying to convict him so that they can kill him. And the Son of Man saying pops up in a really amazing way. All right, so listen, listen to this. Those who had, been, uh, who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Uh, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence of, against Jesus so that they could put him to death. All right, so I want, you to, I want you to have Daniel 7 in the background of this scene, all right? So picture these, these men. Um, Thrones have been set in place, in a sense. People are seated. The court is, has, been, has started. Uh, Jesus sits in judgment, and uh, they appear to have all the power and the authority, and they're going to render a verdict on Jesus in this scene. They're trying to render a guilty verdict on him. Um, but they did not find any uh, witnesses, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. He did actually say that. Um, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer, answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Answer once and for all, are you this man, the Messiah? Here's Jesus, Son of Man, saying, uh, you have said so, Jesus said, 
but I'm going to give you another title for me. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, do you feel what he has just said to them? <laughs> okay, the court is seated. They, have, they, they are rendering a verdict on him. And Jesus is saying, in this moment, I am at your mercy. God has, has made this happen. You sit in power over me, at least you think you have power over me, and you think you get to pronounce your verdict. But let me tell you what's really going to happen. One day, God is going to vindicate me. One day, your kingdom will come crashing down, and I will be vindicated, and one day, I will receive a kingdom that will never end, and all authority and the worship of all the nations will be given to me, and you will see it. And you will recognize just how wrong you were. And you will recognize who I am. When every knee will bow and every tongue will have to confess that I am truly Lord of all. Okay, that's like a, a whoops thing to say to these men. Right? And if you think about Daniel 7, if Jesus is the son of man of Daniel 7, well then who are they in Daniel 7? Well, they're the beasts. They're part of these beastly kingdoms. And these are these men who think they're the holiest people in all the land, right? They're, they're living right next to the temple. They live in the holy city. They're, they're the religious elite thinking they're the holy ones. And Jesus is like, no, actually, you're on the side of the beasts. You think you have power, but I will be vindicated. And, I, and you will see the Son of Man coming. And you will see it with your own eyes. Um, they didn't like this. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, has he spoken or he has spoken blasphemy? Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And their verdict is, he is worthy of death. They answered him, and they sentenced him to death, and he dies at their hands. Now, of course, at the resurrection, he is vindicated by God. He is vindicated by God. He lives here for 40 more days, and then he ascends to a heavenly throne where he has received all authority. Before he leaves, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he rules and reigns from heaven even in the midst of the kingdoms of the earth today, one day he will return as king, as judge, and everybody, including those religious leaders of the day, will see it, and they'll acknowledge his authority and his sovereignty. That's Jesus as the Son of Man, uh, the once and future king, as the title goes. So that's the story. Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who comes with God's authority, the one who suffers and dies on behalf of his people, but through his death and through his resurrection is vindicated. God pronounces his verdict, and he receives the eternal kingdom, and one day his people, his faithful, will rule and reign with him for all eternity. That's the story of the Son of Man and his people. All right, so let me ask this question. It's not necessarily an easy question to answer. Uh, how do we live today with Jesus as our son of man? What does it mean to be God's faithful people um, with Jesus, the son of man? Um, let me say just a couple things, and I'll close. Um, I think this question is particularly relevant when life is challenging, <laughs> when life is hard. When life is demanding, when you feel like you're living in exile, if I can put it that way, okay? That's where, you, that's where you feel the weight of what it means for Jesus to be uh, the Son of Man. And here's what I think it means, uh, simply put. I think it means faith. <laughs> it means trust through challenges in life. It means when we're going through challenges, we look beyond our circumstances. We look up and we see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, 
with all authority being given to him, and we remember that one day, God's verdict will be pronounced. One day the tables will be turned and Jesus will rule and reign as people will rule and reign with him forever. And so we find hope and trust through difficulties because we know how the story's gonna end. Jesus is going to win in the end. So let that sure knowledge of the future give us courage and perseverance to weather whatever challenges we face today, okay? Let that knowledge of the future fill us with hope today. Um, let me give you an easy metaphor. Sometimes we'll watch movies with our three daughters who are seven, five, and three. Uh, movie watching is challenging. They get scared at almost everything. Um, so we were watching the first Incredibles movie. We don't watch a lot of movies for that reason. Um, I got scared when I was that age, so I get it. Um, but we were watching the Incredibles movie one time, and there's obviously there's crying, people wanting to turn off, but they want to keep watching. And, um, and there's, ev- there's the evil syndrome. And, and I just paused the movie, and I said, you know, to our oldest, I said, hey, Dale. Let me just stop for a second. Um, who, who do you think is going to win? Like, do you, do you think Syndrome's going to win? Or do you think the Incredibles are going to win? And she's like, oh, yeah. The, like, is he going to kill the Incredibles? Or, do you th- or what's going to happen? And she's like, oh, yeah, the Incredibles are going to win. I'm like, okay. So, so they're going to win. So whatever's going to happen between now and the end, they're going to win. You can trust that. And that kind of gave her enough to kind of, okay, let's, let's keep going. And, and that's a simple analogy, but it, it, it's kind of that. Like, Hey, God wins. You know, Jesus, he wins, right? Like, whatever happens between now, he wins. And so let's let that knowledge of the future give us hope, give us confidence to live faithfully now. And the news is actually better than he will win. The news is actually, in some sense, Jesus has already won, right? The victory has already been accomplished. He's already risen. He already reigns. In heaven, despite what the earth would tell us as we look out at the news and, and all these things. No, he, he's already winning in some way. His kingdom is, is guaranteed. It's already here, in fact, in some ways. And so it's not just about hunkering down and waiting for the end to come. But it's knowing, no, the, the Jesus' kingdom and his values, they're, they're, they're active even now, right? They'll win out completely in the end, but they're active now. And so we can live those out now even in the midst of the kingdoms of the world that live by different values. So, I mean, we could just take a Sermon on the Mount that you ladies are going to walk through, right? Love of enemies, um, forgiveness of those who have have hurt us, Um, living by this deep trust in a a God who loves us through whatever we're going through, Um, pursuing purity, um, uh, kindness, all these basic values that sometimes feel kind of weak in in, in the world. Like, these don't actually work in the real world. Uh, we said, no, they actually work. <laughs> Jesus' kingdom is active here. And these values actually are the way the universe works. And they will win out in the end. They're, they're on the winning side. They're not on the losing side. And so, amen. And so even now, we live according to the values of his kingdom. And, of course, we live with the hope that one day he wins completely. So um, all that to say, we live by faith. <laughs> That's, that's how we live with Jesus as the Son of Man. We live by faith, by this confident expectation in what he's already done and what he will do. Um, I love this simple uh, verse from 1 John, uh, where John says this, Everyone born of God overcomes the world, meaning the, the, beast, the, the bad parts of the world. Um, this is the victory that over, has overcome the world. What's the victory? Our faith. That's how we overcome, through trust. By trusting that he is one, by trusting that he will win, and then by living according to his values, trusting that those values win out in the end, even when they don't feel like they're winning now. That's how we overcome the world today. It's by faith. We put our trust in Jesus, what he's done, what he will do.
So uh, let me try to make this practical if I can and uh, give you just a couple ideas. Um, where do you feel like you're living in exile? Okay, let me, let me ask the question that way. And I, I just need to acknowledge like, hey, we're not in exile. We're in Orange County in 2018. You know, like we're kind of winning by the world standards. Um, so I want to, there, there's a dynamic, like this is especially a message for church, the church in other parts of the world, right? Or other, other times in life. So I want to just acknowledge we got it real good. Um, that being said, there's all, we all have places where we, we feel the crunch of this world bearing down on us, okay? Um, we feel its values trying to conform us to its mold, or we, we experience the, the grief of, of it. So I, I want to just sort of acknowledge, put that in the right context, but, but still acknowledge it's very real what we all have to work through. So let me just give you a couple examples. Um, so for instance, um, where do you experience injustice in your life? And some of you in your childhood experienced great injustices. Uh, maybe you're in a work context right now where you feel like you experience injustice. Or you're in a relationship or a relational set of you know, cons- contexts where you feel like, I just feel like I keep experiencing injustice. You feel the, the, just the press of, of that. Well, what does it mean to live by faith in the midst of injustice? To trust, you know what, God, one day you'll set all this right. Like you know, you'll render the verdict on this. It'll all be worked out. I don't have to be the judge here. You're going to be the judge. And I can live by these, these values of, of uh, honesty, integrity, forgiveness, long-suffering. Uh, here's one. I think just where does the reality of the world fill you with fear and anxiety? And for many of us, that's when we watch the news or read the news, right? Every day you read what's happening in the world. You're reading about the kingdoms of the world. And your heart is just filled with anxiety and fear. And you walk away like, oh, that was not a great use of my time, you know, even though you need to know these things. But what does it mean to, to sit with what's happening in the world, but from a place of faith? All right, Jesus, you're in control. You're going to win. You're going to win. So what does it mean to sit with this information and not be hopeless, but to be a person of hope because there's so much to be hopeful for? Uh, And then what what I think for many of us, what we feel more is where do you feel the pressure of worldly kingdoms trying to conform you to their mold? Where do you feel the values of the world like just roughing you up inside where you just feel pressure? I've got to live this way because this is how everybody else lives. I think that's really probably where most of us feel the rub of these of these kingdoms. So a couple obvious examples, like just this push for materialism and consumerism that we live in, especially at our place and time, where this is, this is just what people do. You acquire wealth for yourself. You get lots of stuff. That's what success looks like. That's what happiness and meaning looks like. What would it look like to live as the people of God in the midst of that and to live by faith? What is faith in Jesus? No, Jesus' way is the right way. He calls us to this utter generosity with our possessions. This really, this internal freedom from possessions. Consistently, he, he, he says that. Yeah, but that's just not the way the world works. Well, that's the way Jesus' kingdom works. Which, which, one, which one wins in the end? Okay? So what would it look like to live by faith? And even if that means, that's going to feel, that's going to put us at odds with our friends. Um, we're going to feel like we're missing out. We're going to feel less than. How do, how do we sit with that but live by faith in the midst of that kind of value system? Or this whole sexualized culture that we're living in, in this, this culture of external image where there's so much that every, it's just what you do, right? 
Your body looks good. Your face looks good. Um, your, everything is sexualized. Like, what does it look like to live differently? And get, no, no, no. That's not, that's not the way of Jesus' kingdom. And that way is not going to win in the end. What does it look like to look inward, to pursue our own, the, 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 the growth of our own spiritual lives more than our physical lives? That's going to feel, we're going to feel we're going to feel uglier then. You know, whatever it might, we're going to feel less then. That's hard. But to trust, no, no. The internal journey, that's the one that lasts. That's the one that, that matters. That's the one that wins out in the end. Uh, some of you are in a particular work culture, and you all know what this looks like for you, where just there's values that drive your work that you, you feel so much the tension of. It's like, hey, this is how the industry works. You, you, play by, you have to play by the rules or you're not going to last. Or, you know, whatever that looks like. And, and I think there's this really interesting conversation there to go, okay, um, what does it look like to live by the, the values of Jesus in this place how can I do that faithfully? How do I do my job faithfully? What, is the, what does wisdom dictate on how I navigate all that in a way that Jesus would say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's exactly what I had for you, where you, you are salt and light through the values that, that lead you. Um, you're able to do your job. Okay, that's gonna, I know that's a very personal, individual journey, but I think that's a good one to wrestle with. Um, I think I have one more. Oh, yeah. You know, and just in the midst of all the cultural messages that we hear through all of our inputs, um, and I could list off 10. What does it look like to go, you know, the world's moving this way in, in a handful of ways, but Jesus' kingdom's gonna last. So how do I remain faithful to that? Um, how do I remain faithful to his word, what we see in his word about what, what, what truth is, what reality is, what our value should be? And that's gonna, make, that's gonna put me at odds uh, with people in ways that I hate. Like, I don't want, I don't want that conversation, but what's my option? I mean, what kingdom wins in the end? All that to say, I think this is about living by faith in the sure future and even in the present that Jesus' kingdom is active and, and that's the kingdom that wins out in the end. So let's be faithful to that kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. I'm gonna have Christina come back up and she's gonna lead us through a time of prayer where we just lift up um, different parts of our world, different parts of our lives uh, along these, these lines. We just ask for God's kingdom. You know, we want your kingdom to, to come, Lord, and we wanna be faithful to that. So would you bow your heads with us? Father, just as Dave said, we wanna be faithful. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of power and authority that you actually have overcome, that you reign, that you're the one sitting on the throne. And Lord, we want, the, we want that to shape everything about how we live and what we do. Lord, we want to live out of that certainty with great hope and trust. We want to think about how you win in the end. Lord, I do ask that as we consider this world that we're living in and the politics and the news and the things that surround us, Lord, we just acknowledge it can create anxiety, fear, and even despair for people. Take a moment and consider what are the things that really play on you in these ways. Lord, we thank you that you have all authority, that everything is under you and submitted to you. 
that you are on the throne and you reign throughout this world, that every kingdom is under your domain. Father, as we think about our culture and the climate and the messages that are around us, we just acknowledge it can, in fact, create a temptation to conform, to give in. Let's take a moment to consider where those things are for us, where we're feeling a pressure to conform. Father, we want you to fill us with hope of your victory in this. We want to see your truth and live faithfully in that. God, we thank you again that you win. And we want to be, as Dave said, on your team that wins. And Father, we think about uh, just our day-to-day, our work, our home life, our family life, the ways that we spend our days. Lord, there are pressures there. Let's take a moment to just acknowledge the pressures we're experiencing in the day-to-day. Father, I ask that you would embolden us with your strength. That we would gain courage because we know you are the son of man who's victorious. In those daily pressures, Lord, help us to see you. And Lord, we just acknowledge that we're broken and we mess up and we blow it and there is sin in our lives. Lord, we just take, we want to take a moment to lay those things at your feet where we are desperate for your victory, where we want you to move in and change us. Father, we do ask that your spirit would do that kind of work to change us and allow us to experience the victory, your victory over sin. That you would break any strongholds that are occurring in this room even now where people are living in bondage. May they experience your victory. Father, we want to be a people who live with courage and perseverance. We want to live out of the hope that it is done. It is finished. You have overcome that every heartache in this world has been overcome. Lord, allow us to be a people who move in faithfulness out of that hope, who trust out of that hope. Thank you that you are the son of man and we have victory. And I pray this in your name. Amen.